the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. This is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a doctor, historian, and a professor from Indiana University named Richard Gunderman. He has a new book called uh, Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond, which came out uh, just this month. He joins me now by phone. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, you know, it's interesting... Did you write this book while the pandemic was going on? Yes, I did. I'd done a prior book with this publisher on Marie Curie, a famous scientist, perhaps the only person that will ever be to win two Nobel Prizes in different natural sciences. And I thought, boy, good to have that done. And then I got a call from them. Hey, would you like to do something on the history of pandemics? And I said yes. So I basically set to work on this book just as it was clear that COVID-19 was going to be a worldwide pandemic. You know, it's funny. I've talked to some some writers uh, and some very successful writers, New York Times bestsellers and so on, who, um, and I asked them, have you been really productive during this time? We've all been sheltering in place. And, and, you know, the the responses were varied. Some, Some got a lot of work done. But I was surprised at the number of people who said, you know what, I was just stunned. Uh, you know, I was like a deer in the headlights. I accomplished nothing this year. Um, yeah. And and I think that's true for a lot of people. So, so kudos to you for uh, digging in and not only uh, writing something uh, topical, but um, making use of the, of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it was terrible to see the pandemic unfold, but on the other hand, it was great to be exploring the history of pandemics to see how human beings have responded to them in the past and hopefully share some lessons that we've learned from the past about the current situation. Well, it's it's interesting that you've done this book because when the when the pandemic first became pretty much a a, a global event that we were all caught up in, I kind of looked back at the uh, Spanish flu in 1918 because we we were hearing at the beginning, well, you know, give this thing a couple of weeks to run its course like the flu every year, you know, we'll we'll be out of this in a few weeks. And I had a feeling it was something different than that. And and I was looking at the um, uh, Spanish flu pandemic and it dragged out for about two or three years. And the thing I found the most interesting is I read some newspaper accounts and some bulletins from 1918 and 19 that talked about groups of 10 people or less, um, social distancing, the wearing of masks, canceling schools and meeting places, sheltering in place, you know, staying home, staying in. And I thought, we aren't doing much different than we did 100 years ago. Boy, that is a good observation. And you're, I've been struck by exact, this, exactly the same thing. Now, of course, in some ways, we've made tremendous progress. In 1918, no one had ever seen a virus. It wasn't until the 1930s that we had electron microscopes that could enable us to actually see viruses. And, you know, we've now got uh, the ability to sequence the genome. 
of a coronavirus and design vaccines in very short order and produce them. Of course, in 1918, uh, nobody had ever seen a virus. There was certainly no way to vaccinate against it. But on the other hand, the public health approach is startlingly similar to now, as you say, social distancing, masks, avoiding large crowds and, you know, tight indoor spaces. One thing that I haven't seen recommended of late is uh, there were a lot of public health warnings not to spit in public. So at least that's one thing that's disappeared in the succeeding hundred years. But, but yeah, I mean, the way to combat a respiratory viral infection turns out to be, in many respects, the same today as it was a hundred years ago. Well, it's, um, a, you know, I, I, I guess since we don't have spittoons anymore, yeah. it's, it's not something we need to be reminded of anymore. But um, but I, I was struck and somewhat haunted by the notion of people being, you know, basically in quarantine at in those days when there was no radio, no television, no internet, no telephone, and, and literally no way to be in contact the way we have this past year with, you know, Zoom meetings and working from home and, and uh, you know, remote learning, education, and, and so on. It's been um, really different how we've been able to cope with doing the same old thing. Boy, that is absolutely true. I mean, we have a lot to bemoan about the current situation, no doubt about it. But when you think about those people, as you indicate, in 1918, 1919, uh, told to stay home, you know, don't go out, don't go to work, don't go to school, don't go to worship services and so forth. Right. Uh, you know, they just didn't have even landlines, let alone cell phones and, you know, tablet computers with the video conferencing capabilities. So we do have some blessings we can count as well. And I think uh, our electronic ability to at least talk to each other and see each other in real time is one blessing we should uh, not forget about. More with Indiana University professor, doctor, and historian Richard Gunderman about his book, Contagion, straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. 
Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with Indiana University professor, doctor, and historian Richard Gunderman about his book, Contagion, straight ahead. As we're talking, it is literally the one-year anniversary here in Michigan of the announcement of um, the first cases of COVID-19 and and then very quickly after that, with, within days really, the shutdown notices began. I had started a couple of months earlier. I had set up a studio in my home and was planning to work from home, thinking, I, you know, it would be kind of new and different. And then a couple months goes by, and all of a sudden everybody's doing, doing work from home. <laughs> but, but I always point out... Um, Richard, that I didn't feel as put out as some people did who all of a sudden one day they were going to the office, the next day they were trying to figure out 
how to do a Zoom meeting on their laptop. Yeah, absolutely. It was a huge disruption for a lot of people. And of course, many people work in industries that during the shutdown, suppose you're in the live entertainment industry, restaurant industry, uh, you know, hotel and tourism industry, uh, you basically don't have any work to do, even uh, even via Zoom or over a phone line. So, we, you know, w- when we think about a pandemic, we quite naturally think about, you know, what microbe is it? What's the virus? How does it cause disease in human beings? Can we vaccinate against it? But we really don't see a pandemic unless we take into account the economic and educational, psychological and social dimensions of uh, living through one, which sadly is something a whole lot of listeners have experienced firsthand. And and yet because of the technology, we have muddled through differently than the people and and victims of some of these that you've looked at and studied that go back a hundred years and much earlier. Um, how was there a public health program hundreds of years ago that you know were there decrees tacked up you know in town centers you know saying social distance wear a mask or or some other precautionary measures yeah interestingly we have uh woodcuts paintings of people wearing uh devices that look a lot like masks from centuries ago so people back then they thought they were more likely to think that it was bad air, you know, miasma, foul-smelling air that caused the infection. But nevertheless, they were trying to protect themselves from breathing in something that they thought was harmful. Again, nobody knew about bacteria and viruses uh, 500 years ago. And, of course, one of the major leaps forward that enabled us to start understanding pandemics in a serious scientific way was the invention of the microscope. You know, all of a sudden, uh, the famous uh, Dutch draper, the the guy made curtains, but he was interested in seeing very small things like threads, and he soon uh, trained his microscopes on things like uh, water from ponds and realized there were lots of little organisms moving around in that water. Well, once we knew, you know, that there are bacteria and fungi and what we call protists and so forth, all of a sudden uh, a new world uh, of biology opened up, but it also made us it made it possible for us to really understand how these diseases are transmitted and how they wreak their havoc on the human body. Are there, there have been at various times in history, big pandemics we've been calling COVID-19 this this current thing that we've been in for the last year like a 100 year event because the closest thing we come to it is the the Spanish flu in 1918 Um, but is there a cycle for global pandemics that that happens every 100 years or 50 years I, I know we have coronaviruses that raise their ugly head every so often and and seem somewhat random or are they all random 
Well, I wish I could say there's some cycle, some regular period at which these things happen, but my own study of the subject leads me to believe it's not so. And in fact, I would say we've had two major pandemics in the last hundred years. The first one being, as you indicate, the 1918 Spanish flu, a misnomer, by the way. Nobody thinks it originated in Spain or hit the Spanish population particularly hard. It's just that it happened during World War One, and all the nations involved in the war, the U.S., uh, Britain, France, uh, Germany, and so forth, they didn't want to publicize that they had an epidemic at home, so they suppressed it in their press. Spain wasn't part of the war they uh you know shared the information and so it became called the the spanish flu but so they were the first ones one. yeah they were the first ones to fess up to to having yeah. uh, an epidemic going on <laughs> yeah. in their country and then it became known as the uh spanish flu exactly no good deed goes unpunished exactly that that flu killed we think about 50 million people uh and infected about half a billion people and those numbers are actually more impressive or more terrifying than they sound when you realize the population of the globe was much lower just a fraction of what it is today so a whole lot of people died uh, the other big pandemic we've had in the last hundred years would be HIV/AIDS. Now it's much more difficult to transmit, but once we, you know, became aware of it in the 1980s, uh, despite our best efforts, tens of millions of people around the world became infected, and we think about 37 million people have died so far of HIV/AIDS. It's still the number two organism the the virus that causes it the number two killer of uh, people worldwide in terms of infectious disease so you know that's an example of two big pandemics in just the last hundred years and now i think we'll all be adding covid19 as as the third in that line and when we look at at covid19 of course uh our, our former president uh, very famously referred to it as the 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 China virus, um, but there's there's some evidence, and and maybe you've seen evidence that would support or refute this, that it was transferred from animals to humans. Yeah, we call this zoonotic diseases, you know, that they come, like you say, from bats or birds or small mammals to human beings. And, you know, as far as I know, the best evidence points to that happening in a so-called wet market, a live animal market in Wuhan province, China. But I'm not sure that we've gotten to the bottom of that story yet. Agreed. And, and, uh, And I've heard similar stories about the advent of AIDS. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that AIDS was transmitted to human beings from other apes. Uh, You know, again, we don't know for sure, but we've had decades to work on that. And I think that's uh, by far the most likely hypothesis. So many of these viruses and bacteria aren't native to human beings. They arise in other species. And then if we're exposed to those species, you know, like butchering animals, for example, and some of their blood gets into a human bloodstream, some of those microorganisms can actually make the jump from one species to another, and, you know, boom, we've got the start of another human pandemic. 
Is there a reason to believe that that's the more common occurrence? Did that happen hundreds of years ago and ultimately influence the dietary habits of various cultures and religions? Yeah, I think that's got to at least be a factor. Of course, there are many other factors, what food is available. You know, somebody hearing, gosh, we think uh, COVID-19 got started uh, in a wet market in Wuhan province, China. Well, the simple answer would be let's close all the wet markets. So and we I've, heard people, problem I've heard people suggest that, Richard. Yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it makes sense. But on the other hand, we have to be mindful of the fact there may be dozens, hundreds, thousands of people whose livelihood depends on those markets. I'm not saying that we can't close them. But we certainly need to make provisions so that people can uh, can keep living when we make those sorts of adjustments. With this, um, there have been a lot of political arguments about uh, COVID nineteen and and the way that we've handled it from a public policy standpoint. But what what has have we done pretty well by it, or as some people might suggest, we were a little bit asleep at the wheel at first? Well, you know, we made some mistakes. Uh, exactly a year ago, you had people on national television saying, you know, masks, ah, the general public doesn't need to worry about wearing masks. Save those for the you know, the health professionals in hospitals. And, of course, that turned out to be really bad advice. Well, uh, and the, the and, and and they might go so far as to say and include uh, people that are especially at risk, including the elderly. Absolutely. Uh, you know, on the other hand, with developing the vaccine, uh, sequencing, you know, the genes of the virus, developing the vaccine, testing it, here we are uh, not much more than a year later, and, and we're vaccinating 2 million people a day. That is a triumph. I'm not aware of any uh, global effort like that in the history of science or medicine where we responded that quickly and that effectively to a new virus. I've heard some uh, biologists um, saying that this notion that that somehow the development of the vaccine was miraculous um they they suggest that maybe it wasn't as miraculous as it seems because a lot of work had begun on what ultimately became the vaccines going back to SARS and Ebola and and other outbreaks that they'd been working on things for a while and then just kind of dropped it as as the need waned. Um, so they were able to pick up some of that already existing work that had been done. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. What you might call a lot of the scientific infrastructure, you know, laboratories, the instruments you need to do the investigations scientists, laboratory assistants, and so forth, they were already in place, uh, largely working on other problems. But, you know, once we saw what COVID-19 was going to likely amount to, could make a very quick transition. And, uh, you know, that's an important point. Uh, As you say, many of these pandemics come along fairly infrequently. 
one of the problems they present is we can forget about them. You know, in the, in the few years after COVID-19, it'll be very fresh in our minds. But as 2030, 2040, 2050 roll along, if we haven't seen another uh, global outbreak like that, it's quite possible that we'll become less vigilant and uh, not maintain that infrastructure and, and not be as well prepared for the next pandemic. Now, you've looked at, at a number of these outbreaks going back throughout history. Um, have we learned all of what we should learn from these events and carried that, that forward in the way we react to outbreaks like this one? No, I mean, I think these lessons can be very quickly forgotten, partly because, you know, it may be generations between pandemics. And I think that's one reason that we, you know, we're all naturally forward looking. What's what's the next virus? What's the next vaccine and so forth? But we need to pause at least once in a while and look backward, you know, into history to try to understand what's happened in the past and, and what we can learn from it. And uh, those lessons are really remarkable. For example, not only the development of the microscope, but the first vaccines uh, by a man named Edward Jenner, who figured out how to vaccinate against smallpox, a technology that really spread around the world pretty, pretty rapidly thereafter. Uh, these, I would say, geniuses who've uh, lighted the way for the rest of us over time, uh, you know, they embody some some insight, some creativity, some determination that we continue to need to cultivate in uh, each generation of physicians and scientists. And I think sharing the stories of those heroes of the past is one way to make sure we keep drawing bright minds uh, into science and medicine who will be key defenders the next time we face a pandemic. What are some of the biggest... um events in pandemic history? Well, a a really big one is the so-called Black Death, the bubonic plague that struck Europe in the 14th century and, and, you know, really devastated cities like Florence and Italy. Um, That really swept across Asia and uh, all the way through Europe and may have killed as many as 200 million people over a long period of time. So some could argue it's the worst pandemic we've ever faced. But, uh, you know, it, it's preserved in nursery rhymes and literature. Uh, the, the, the great Italian author Boccaccio wrote his Decameron about a group of young adults who flee Florence, you know, trying to get away from the plague and then tell each other stories. So in some cases, these terrible events, pandemics, have actually spurred artistic creativity, and those works have persisted for centuries and are are still read or admired or listened to even today. Um, What are the lessons that we can learn from those big events throughout history? You know, if... If we have the presence of mind to look back, what should we be looking for? Well, I think one is to try to identify new infections that have the potential to become pandemics as early as possible. So that's a good reason to have these days global surveillance, right? Because if a new virus 
uh, is transmitted to a human being in Wuhan province, China, it could show up in a major U.S. city in just 24 hours, you know, because of intercontinental jet travel. So we really we shouldn't be looking only in our own backyard. We need really worldwide surveillance to recognize these, uh, you know, outbreaks early and and try to isolate people who are infected so that we can prevent them from spreading, you know, from city to city, nation to nation, and continent to continent around the world. Uh, you know, eventually we may be able to make vaccines against new pathogens, but if we can prevent them sp- from spreading widely to begin with, uh, we'll be dealing with a much smaller problem. Why? Uh, I'm not sure even how to ask this, Richard, but why was SARS so short-lived? There were a lot of people that were concerned that we were going to see the kind of pandemic that we're seeing now from COVID-19. Why, what did we do better, different? What was different about SARS? Yeah, a couple of things. It was a pretty lethal virus, but happily wasn't as easily transmitted. So we had outbreaks in places like Taiwan. Uh, somebody returning from a wedding brought it to Toronto. Uh, you know, hundreds of people died, in, including a number of health professionals, nurses and doctors and so forth. But to some degree, we were lucky that that was just a less infectious or transmissible virus and was easier to contain before it had spread so widely. Unfortunately, SARS-CoV-2 its successor, so to speak, is a whole lot more transmissible and uh, got way out of hand before we, I think, really realized what was happening. And that raises the question about variants, and people are concerned about the ones from South Africa and from the U.K., um, variations on the existing uh, uh virus uh, that COVID-19 is and yet I've I've had doctors tell me that every time a contagion travels from one person to another it becomes a variant well certainly there's the potential for mutation you know basically the virus needs to copy its own genes And the coronavirus, like the influenza virus, is not a perfect photocopier, so to speak. So from time to time, errors are made. That's kind of what we mean by mutation. And, you know, most of those errors are bad. They end up hurting the virus. Maybe it can't be transmitted or doesn't cause a disease anymore. But every once in a while, one of those mutations actually makes it more transmissible Uh, harder to recognize by the immune system of somebody who's already been infected or vaccinated. And that's where we have a problem. For example, this UK variant that's uh, accounting for a pretty high percentage of new cases in places like California and Florida. We know from experience in Europe that once it gets to a certain level, accounts for a certain percentage of new cases, in some cases, we can find ourselves in the midst of another surge. And I'll be watching closely for the rest of March and and into April to see if that's indeed what happens, if this new UK variant becomes uh, the the cause of another surge in cases. Is 
Does it appear, I, I know what we're hearing uh, from Dr. Fauci in the U.S. And, and some other experts in this field, but the existing vaccines seem to work with these new variants so far? Yeah, that's my understanding, that they're still pretty effective. They may not prevent somebody who has neither been vaccinated nor had COVID in the past. Uh, they may not prevent them from getting uh, sick, but they're very effective in preventing people from getting seriously sick, you know, needing to be hospitalized or, or be at risk of, of death. But, you know, some new variant could emerge today, tomorrow, next month. And, uh, you know, we may need to design newer vaccines that protect against those variants. So, you know, it's conceivable that just like many people get a flu shot every year, uh, or at least are encouraged to do so, that, uh, you know, we could be getting uh, new new vaccines for new variants of the coronavirus in years to come. I'm not predicting that, but that is certainly within the realm of possibility. Well, we have seen it with the flu, because it seems like we get a different variation of the flu every flu season and new vaccines are, are being made, Is it? Uh, will it be as simple as it seems that, you know, once a variant is, is identified and, and studied, that vaccines can be upgraded or, or slightly adjusted to be effective? Is that something that can happen fairly quickly? Yeah, that's certainly, I think, a safe bet. But one problem we confront, we already confront with the influenza vaccine, namely somebody has to make a guess months in advance of flu season what's likely to be the most threatening variant. And, you know, sometimes we get that <laughs> guess right, but other times we're wrong, and we end up everybody having gotten a flu vaccine that's actually not very effective against the uh, variants or strains of flu we're, we're facing in any particular season. And, you know, we'd be liable to make the same mistakes with variants of coronavirus if it comes to that. More with Indiana University professor, doctor, and historian Richard Gunderman about his book, Contagion. Straight <laughs> The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination. 
freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacle that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. From the Tom Sumner Show. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Indiana University professor, doctor, and historian Richard Gunderman about his book, Contagion, straight ahead. In looking at all these different uh, pandemics from throughout history, um, were there uh, universal traits or were there things that that stood out that, that... maybe surprised you um, about similarities and differences in in these different uh, events? 
Well, one is, and I'm happy to say this doesn't appear to have been a problem so far with COVID-19, but we know that in pandemics in the past, for example, the epidemic that struck ancient Athens when it was in the midst of a 30-year-long war against the city-state of Sparta, or the Black Death, as we discussed in uh, Florence, Italy, and uh, other cities around Europe, uh, people were dying at such a fast clip, and so many people were sick that you might say social order broke down. You know, there, there weren't people to care for the sick. There weren't people to plant and harvest crops. Uh, you know, basically it caused uh, a kind of breakdown, uh, maybe even chaos, uh, in areas, and I'm, you know, very delighted that we haven't seen anything approaching that uh, with COVID-19 so far. It's certainly isolated a lot of people. People have lost jobs. Our economy's taken a hit. A whole lot more of us are more lonely than we were before the pandemic, but we haven't seen that widespread uh, breakdown in social order that has occurred with some pandemics in the past. Although we did have a, a little brush with it in the very early days of the shutdown when we were struggling to figure out food distribution. Yeah, well, that that's a good point. I mean, we, things certainly didn't go smoothly, but, you know, just as an example, uh, paramedics, police officers, you know, the court system and so forth, they, they were still functioning pretty well. Uh, I think throughout the pandemic, but yeah, there were a lot of things we didn't get quite right and need to need to learn from. Well, and I, and I think we have learned if we if we uh, write it down and, and remember to refer to it thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred years from now, if something like this should happen again. Yeah, one of the most. Uh, famous phrases associated with an American philosopher, George Santayana, uh, those who don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And we really do need to do need to be recording what's happened during COVID-19 and making sure we share those lessons with our children and grandchildren so they can be even better prepared than we were. Well, it's a, a fascinating book and a very timely book from uh, Dr. Richard Gunderman, who is uh, a doctor and historian, a professor from Indiana University. Richard, I, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I can't believe how fast our time has gone, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you about this. Thanks for sharing uh, the time and, and um, your observations from... Uh, writing this book um obviously the book is a great place to start it's called contagion plagues pandemics and cures from the black death to covid19 and beyond um richard i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and about your work um about you and your work past present and future uh, and I, I mentioned the, the book is a great place to start, but do you have a website? Yes, people could look at my uh, website at the Indiana University School of Medicine or Indiana University in general and find out more about what I've been up to. And certainly those who glance at the book will, uh, I think, find leads uh, to many other enjoyable reading opportunities, biographies about many figures in medical history, past specific fan, uh, pandemics, 
and things we can do to be better prepared in the future. Well, I, uh, I appreciate your work, and uh, thank you for sharing this time with me, Dr. Richard Gunderman. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Okay, and with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons. What's, what's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potatoes? salad. I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find a mate for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? 
Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 